Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we continue to reflect into the great Christian thinkers. Um, we are now entering into uh, the 20th century, and we do so on the heels of reflecting into uh, Cardinal Newman. Uh, and I just want to thank all of you out there for your many observations out from that radio program and uh, some of the questions you had. I very much enjoyed those correspondences, and um, I know many of you were uh, affirmative of uh, John O'Hara, who is with me again here in studio. So, John, great to have you with me another evening. Always nice to be here, Joe. Thank you. So, John, uh, we are entering into the 20th century, and it is with great excitement, uh, similar to last week as we were talking about Cardinal Newman, that we have the opportunity to talk about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, two of my personal heroes. And what we're going to do is uh, focus on various aspects of just not their friendship, but also their writing. There's so much to talk about. I mean, we could spend months talking about them, um, but within the narrative of what we've been doing here, we're going to speak to who um, they were about in their writing in a matter of uh, 28 to 30 minutes. By the grace of God, go you and I. And just off the top, we should say, you know, here we have two men that probably first met John when Tolkien arrived at Oxford University and became the university chair of Anglo-Saxon, which in more simplified terms would have been Old English in 1925. Um, Now, this would be a friendship, as I know some of you know out there, that would play itself out as members of the group called Inklings, a group of writers that would um, critique each other's work and often, John, with a pint of beer at the Eagle and Child Pub, right? Um, you know, last week I mentioned that my summers in Oxford were highlighted by praying in the churches where, where Cardinal Newman preached. Well, I should add that other pit stops included a few uh, lunches at the Eagle and Child. It was oh, really a, a highlight you. for me. And I, actually, where, where I studied there was probably about half a mile away. Oh. We had 45 minutes, so at times I'd find myself jogging to the Eagle and Child <laughs> pub just to sit where uh, Lewis and Tolkien uh, sat there in the Eagle and Child pub. And um, for those of you who have been there, you know that there's still pictures of them um, smoking their cigars and, and drinking their beer and, and, and talking about the things they talked about, which was often... John, uh, them discussing their writing. And that writing ranged from poetry to, of course, literature to the faith, and it went on really for for two decades. So, uh, and we should add that the Inklings were just not about uh, Tolkien and Lewis. Uh, There were others, Charles Williams of note, but as I say that, Tolkien and Lewis made a point to uh, meet exclusively with one another, and this really is how um, their friendship was built up over time. But before I go any further, John, I know you have some bio pieces, other bio pieces to talk about. Well, you want to do J.R.R. Tolkien first? Yes, okay, yeah, okay, sure, yeah. sure. That makes sense. John Ronald Rule Tolkien, CBE, Commander of the British Empire. That mm-hmm. is, he got that only a few years before he died. That is quite an honor. Okay. He was born in South Africa. His dad was a Englishman. He worked for a bank, and the bank assigned him to South Africa. And that's where he was born in, I believe, 1893, actually 1892. A younger brother was born two years later. And then 
they decided they were going to move the family back to England. So his mother, Mabel, took herself and the two kids back to England, and the father was going to join them. And uh, she was back in England for, oh, maybe a matter of half a year or so, and he got sick and died. So mm-hmm. now she's a widow. Mm-hmm. And once he died, there was no, the bank did not continue his salary. Mm-hmm. So she is, has these kids. She's a Baptist, and she converted to Catholicism. And the family, her Baptist family, was so upset that they cut off all her funds, so she had to support herself and the kids. She became a, a Catholic and raised the boys. And when uh, he was about 10 years old, she died of diabetes. But she had made arrangements for a priest, Father Francis Xavier Morgan, who worked at the Birmingham Oratory, mm-hmm. to ring a bell. Mm-hmm. And he was going to like be right. their father. Now, actually, he, I, you know, he can't actually be live with them. But anyway, he took care of their upbringing, and he did that. Tolkien went to Switzerland in 1911. Again, he's a boy, and those mountains just really enhanced him. And mm-hmm. he was quite interested in the cold. He was mm-hmm. into the Norse literature. And then at 16 years old, he met a girl, Edith Mary Brett, three years older than he was. And they would goof around. They would go to this, like, pub thing, and they would be on the balcony, and down below would be people with hats, and they would drop strawberries off the balcony. Yeah. And, they thought this was yeah. Yeah. and then the priest said, no, you're going to stop this relationship, and you're not going to do any of this until you're 21. Hmm. And J.R.R. obeyed. The evening of his 21st birthday, he wrote her a letter and said, you know, I've, you've been in my mind all this time. She said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm engaged to be married. So he goes down and sees her, and they have a long talk. She mails the engagement ring back to the man she's engaged to, and um, they fall in love. They decide to get married, but he says, you're going to have to convert to Catholicism, and she did, and they were married uh, in January of 1913, St. Mary Immaculate, and he began his, shall we say, academic career at World War I, comes along, and he becomes lieutenant in the British Army. He was at the Battle of the Somme, mm-hmm. and then uh, that was in July, and then about in October of the year, he came down with trench fever, and he was sent back to England, never to return to the war. Late teens, 20s, he went to begin his uh, academic career at Oxford. Yeah, and as you're talking about uh, Tolkien and war, John, this might be a good time to endorse a book here um, written by Joseph uh, LeConte titled A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and a Great War, How Tolkien and Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism in the Cataclysm of 1914 to 1918. And I really wanted to endorse that book because this is a book that I just recently finished. And I tell you, John, it really illuminates so much of uh, what we are about this evening in Lewis and Tolkien and what you are talking about there. Yeah, it's Lewis was in World War I and was wounded in the war. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, it, it's interesting you're talking about his relationship with his uh, wife and that um, he said, hey, <laughs> you need to convert to Catholicism. This was a man of great faith. And why? Well, I think you alluded to it. Tolkien was very much influenced at a young age by the sacrifices that his mother made, specifically to convert to Catholicism, right? Because in converting to Catholicism, this meant many hardships. And so he recognized that for what it was, and it became something very, very important to him. Um, And certainly this would, in time, shape the relationship between Tolkien and Lewis. You want to hear a little bit about Lewis's uh, early years? Okay, he was born in Belfast in 1898, and uh, his father was uh, gainfully employed and quite bright and but the mother died when he was 10 years old, and that was quite a point. He had a younger brother. Uh, Clive Staples was C.S. Lewis's first name. He had a, a brother, and they were good friends all through their life. And then when the father was now a widower, 
he sent him off to several schools, boarding schools. Oh, one was Windward School, another one was Malvern School, and these were not very good. The Malvern School engaged in fagging. I'm not sure what that means. I think that's when older boys kind of boss around younger boys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, hey, these were not good. However, when he was about uh, 16 years old, a man named Mr. Kirkpatrick became his, shall we say, tutor, and he was very good. He taught him about uh, logic, uh, Latin, Greek, all that. Mm-hmm. And, and so he became quite bright. Then World War I broke out, and uh, he was involved in that and was wounded. He then became a fellow at Magdalen College in Oxford, mm-hmm. and that's where he spent quite some time. His father died in 1929. C.S. Lewis was an atheist, but he converted to theism right around the death of his father. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what all that had to do with him. And then in 1931, he converts to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, the Inklings were probably... Uh, Alive from 1930 to about 1945, and they, mm-hmm. they, they were meeting all through this time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with other people joining them. Mm-hmm. So uh, C.S. Lewis really, to, to me, it, the Warriors, World War II, he began to make broadcasts on the radio about Christianity, and that's mm-hmm. where mere Christianity got its genesis from. Mm-hmm. Now, these were broadcasts, but they were reel-to-reel tape-recorded, mm-hmm. and they were so well-received by the British population at that time that as the war came to its conclusion, uh, there was huge demand that he turn this into a book, which he did. Mm-hmm. And it became quite phenomenal. And he was on the cover of Time magazine in September of 1947. That's how well-known he was. Yeah. And uh, he dies in 1963. And, and why do I bring that up, John? Because it was November 22nd, 1963. You could find it on about page 29 of your paper. That day, uh, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and why is November 22nd, 1963 important to us, John? Well, because that was, of course, the assassination of JFK. So here you have, on one hand, uh, a man to the likes of John F. Kennedy assassinated, and across the ocean, uh, another man (laughs) in the upper room of this very impoverished home on the outskirts of Oxford die, and of course, uh, this would be C.S. Lewis. Two men, very important to our history. Um, It's interesting how history has a way of bringing certain men together, John. Certainly, we are made to kind of reflect upon that a little bit. Now, as we speak to Lewis a little bit here, as many of us know, C.S. Lewis was one of the great Christian apologists of the 20th century. And in principle, John, there are probably two reasons. The first of which, again, you alluded to, you know, he at one point was an atheist, and because of Tolkien's influence, he converted to Christianity over time. But there was a very real struggle. There was a very real struggle. And I think that is part of what drew so many people to C.S. Lewis. You know, we talked last week with relationship to Carl Newman and his work, Apologia Provita Sua. And in that work, you see a struggle. Um, we compared it to confessions, St. Augustine's struggle to come into the Christian Catholic faith. Um, there's something about the struggle that people can connect with. Huh? It's interesting, even today, John, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, the number one Catholic book still sold over the last 10 years is Rome Sweet Home. Why? Because that's his struggle, his struggle to come into the Catholic faith. In that struggle, he was asking all sorts of questions. So people would read C.S. Lewis, they would listen to C.S. Lewis, and they found themselves connecting with his struggle. And ultimately, he really did become a great apologist because in all of his inquiries, he found answers. Mere Christianity is a gem. I mean, I just remember going through the first few pages of it, and this simple story of you're on a bus, 
and uh, someone takes your seat. You're upset. I mean, there's no big World War One yeah. starter, but yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we all feel that way. And the logic we go through with these simple, ordinary things makes perfect sense. And mm-hmm. he made he made Christianity sound so logical. Not that you can reason your way into Christianity. You can't reason your way into Christianity or into atheism. Mm-hmm. But it makes solid sense. Yeah, well, and as you talk about that, John, it really brings us to our second point, because C.S. Lewis wasn't a philosopher. Certainly, (laughs) he applied a lot of reason, but he was first a literary figure. I mean, he was primarily a man of letters. His first published work was poetry. Um, In point of fact, you talked about Magdalen College. He was a professor of 16th and 17th century literature, right? So he was a man of literature. And he used that backdrop in the light of his discovery of the Christian faith to ultimately tell the story of the Christian faith. What do I mean? Well, he saw the Christian faith within the context of a story, within the context of a story, ultimately through the lens of this narrative of of creation, uh, creation despoiled by sin, only to be restored uh, by the return of the king. Essentially, paradise, (laughs) paradise lost, and paradise regained. And is this not what we see, John, in the narrative of some of his stories, specifically, of course, the very famous Chronicles of Narnia? Because in the Chronicles of of Narnia, here you have Narnia, this beautiful place, coming under the thrall of the white witch who puts Narnia under this deep winter, under this deep spell, um, only to be restored by the return of a great king. I might point out, it's a deep winter without Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> a deep winter, thank you, without Christmas. Something to highlight within the Christian allegory, right? So here we have this great figure, Aslan, who, of course, is this great lion, symbolic of uh, Christ. And uh, this was important to C.S. Lewis, and he would reach many people with it. And oh, by the way, <laughs> do we not see this same narrative play itself out in the drama of The Lord of the Rings? This narrative that has this rhythm of creation, creation despoiled by darkness, and ultimately through the return of a king, in this case Aragon, creation restored, and we should add, with the help of his fellowship, Frodo and and Gandalf and and Samwise. Um, Yes, ultimately, John, what we are made to see is that in these two figures, we have figures who sought to evangelize the imagination a very important phrase to St. John Paul II. We need to renew, he would say, this sense of vigor to evangelize the imagination. Why? Because there's something to say about the power behind allegory. Stories like Narnia and Lord of the Rings that captivate our imagination. Sometimes they tell the story better than we can in our theological language that we like to use. Correct. So this was very important to C.S. Lewis. This was very important to, to Tolkien. And to not speak to this, um, I would be very remiss. One of the sad points to me in the Chronicles of Narnia is in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the cutest teenage girls is Susan. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, she yeah, is yeah, just yeah. a 14-year-old delight. Yeah. In the very last of the novels, the last battle, Susan doesn't make it into heaven. Her mm-hmm. vanity got in the way. We don't mm-hmm. know much about this. But here is this beautiful Christian woman doesn't make it in because mm-hmm. as time passed, she, yeah. you know, original sin is a product. We all carry it with us. 
And that, you know, was too, but that, that is typical of us. And yeah, this whole thing was a very, you know, allegory is hugely powerful, yeah. probably more powerful than logic, I hate to say. Why is our secular atheistic culture so popular? Mm. Not because of philosophy, but because of stories, movies, mm-hmm. TV shows, yep. the general social ethic, uh, the model ethic of we live for ourselves. You know, we are our own God. And it's the allegory that sells. Mm-hmm. That's a great point, John. It's a great point. We are drawn into these secular stories, which has at its root profound evil, profound sin being glorified. And before we are even thinking about it, we are convinced that this is okay. We could go so far as to say, really, that Satan is evangelizing the imagination for his sake, right? Yes. I mean, this is the reality of what we're dealing with today. This is why um, we need to pray, as John Paul II II reminded us in his last document titled The Rapid Development, to evangelize just not journalists and writers, but also all those involved in the media industry, because he understood well the power behind media, the power behind characters, uh, song, and how it can be used against the kingdom of God. And yeah. what, he's, what he's saying to us is, we need to advance the kingdom of God. And this is what C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien did so well. I mean, their narratives countered the narrative of secularism. Yes. Right, And is it not a triumph of the new evangelization to know that the whole series of the Chronicles of Narnia and, and the whole series of the Lord of the Rings was such a, a huge box office hit? Yeah. I mean, these are all figures that everyone can relate to. I say Samwise Ganji, I say Frodo, I say uh, Gandalf, and everyone knows who those characters are. You talk about Susan, yeah. they know who that character is. I mentioned the White Witch. We can talk about Peter. Yeah. Everyone knows who these figures are. One of my favorite characters is Bilbo Baggins from The Hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> and he is he got a great little house there, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he's so comfortable, and along comes this, mm. you got to get busy. And what? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I... I really go along. He's got a great life, and he's called out to go do what? Yeah. And by golly, he gets involved. And this kind of reminds me, I'm thinking of like James and John, the apostles. Peter. They had a great life. Dad mm-hmm. had two fishing boats. Mm-hmm. And then one day this guy comes along and says, hey, I'll make you fishers of men. Whew. Yeah, one thing is for certain, John, when you read these stories, these characters are revealing something of the narrative of salvation history. Now, in saying that, I would like to turn my attention to the relationship between C.S. Lewis and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, specific to Lewis's conversion. Now, one of the things that he struggled with a great deal was the idea that myth was true. For that matter, that it could be utilized for anything good. And uh, I know in light of everything we have just been talking about, John, maybe our listener is asking themselves, well, C.S. Lewis struggled with myth? C.S. Lewis struggled with allegory? That can't be the case. No. Before his conversion... He was very much struggling with the power of myth and the power of allegory. So in response to that, J.R. Tolkien writes this poem to C.S. Lewis called Mythiopia, which literally translates as the mythmaker. And I'm not going to read the whole poem. It's quite long. You can find it online, but I just want to read some excerpts from it. This is a poem from Tolkien. Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow and yet shut the gate that seek no parley and in guarded room, though small and bait upon a clumsy loom. Weave tissues gilded by the far-off day, hoped and believed in under shadows sway. Blessed are the men of Noah's race that build 
their little arcs, though frail and poorly filled. I love that. And steer through winds contrary towards a wraith, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. Blessed are the legend makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. It is not they that have forgot the night or bid us flee to organize delight. In lotus isles of economic bliss, forswearing souls to gain a circa kiss. Such isles they saw afar and ones more fair, and those that hear them yet may yet beware. They have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet though would not in despair retreat. But off to victory have tuned the lyre, and kindled hearts with legendary fire. Illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns as yet by no man seen. Listen to this, John. I will not walk with your progressive apes, erect and sapient, before them gapes. The dark abyss to which their progress tends, if by God's mercy, progress never ends. Mm. And does not ceaselessly revolve the same unfruitful course with changing of a name. I will not treat your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that. Your world immutable wherein no part the little maker has with maker's art. I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. Mm. You know, he speaks of the little maker here, John. He was the little maker. Uh, and he saw himself as the one who was trying to help shape and form C.S. Lewis, right? And so he was constantly reaching out to him in his language. You know, it's interesting, John. Here we have this beautiful poem written in this beautiful prose. And what is he doing? He's evangelizing the imagination of his good friend Calvin Staples, is he yes. not? He's showing us how to evangelize. We have talked so much about the new evangelization. Is it not simply meeting people where they're at? Huh? Exactly. And this is what Tolkien is doing with Lewis. And of course, Lewis, as we know over time, very much is influenced and captivated by the imagery that Tolkien provokes within him. And again, he converts. This is also a poem against modern secularism back in the day, right? And oh. so he's he's calling out these progressive apes. <laughs> you know? That was that was a good line, yeah. Yeah, and, and he's doing so to provoke. He's doing so within the context of a much larger narrative. And, and this is what this man was about, using words to illustrate what the faith is all about and how we can better understand um, the meaning of faith. Modern secularism has been around for about a century and a half. Yeah. There, there's really, yeah. it's, not, it's not all that modern, so to speak. But there is a certain shallowness in Nietzsche and in Freud and in the people that got this started so long ago mm -hmm. and it's still going and not mm -hmm. much has been added to it. But yeah, it has its attractions. And certainly when you see it allegorized on TV screens and movie screens and magazines and just in general life, yes. However, there is a certain shallowness in, in my life revolves around me mm -hmm. and my desire for autonomy for me. Mm -hmm. you know, that, 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 you know, at a certain point, it just becomes vapid. It does. Well said, John. And as we touched upon last week, something to note this evening is the lifestyle to which both Tolkien and Lewis lived. They lived in profound simplicity, John. They did. And they both understood well the best way to combat secularism is simplicity. Now, of course, as I'm speaking to this, for C.S. Lewis, this would be um, post-conversion. 
But post-conversion, C.S. Lewis, man, did he embrace poverty, as did, of course, Tolkien, and they did so so as to grab hold of the deeper truths. Because remember, what does Jesus say in the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Exactly. You know, C.S. Lewis gave away 50% of his royalties to charity. Yeah, and it's also interesting to note that all of the revenue that comes through the C.S. Lewis Foundation goes to charity um, today. So... (laughs) And that, and, that. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. and those charities are receiving hundreds of th- and thousands of dollars mm. because of his uh, generosity. Um, these two men um, very much lived saintly lives. Yes, they did. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, what, 150 million copies have been sold. Oh. I mean, it is a fan. It is not Amazon's bestseller, one mm-hmm. of the top few. Yeah. And one of the best movies ever made came from it. A rather recent movie, actually. Amazing literature that they had. By the way, both were written after World War II was over. Mm-hmm. The Lion Witch mm-hmm. came out in the 1950s, as did Lord of the uh, Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit came out in 1937, and then after the war came out the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, in incidental documentation, John, um, from C.S. Lewis's brother, I think, we've come to find out that <laughs> Tolkien was not fond of Narnia. Uh, C.S. Lewis met with Tolkien in 1949 to read to him Narnia, and he was very critical of Narnia. Mm. And so something else to highlight is, as both of these men lived in simplicity and very much lived for Christ, they were very different temperaments. But Uh, see, this is good. We've talked about this a great deal, John, you know, in The Calling of the Twelve, where you really had this motley crew where no one person was alike. And why, why would Jesus call Matthew to live with Peter and John to live with Simon? Well, because he had a game plan. And that game plan was when you bring... 12 very different people together, what you're going to get, by the grace of God, is change, is change. And C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien understood that, that deeper truth that is as different as they were in their temperament, to come together, to explore in those um, back rooms in the Eagle and Child pub, and also they would meet in, in, in Tolkien's office, was to enrich one another in their uniqueness and then who they were before God. So another yeah. key point. I don't know, John, if you had any closing thoughts. They both lived happy lives. They were both married once, and uh, both in both cases, the wife died before they did. So they were widows for a while. We all know that uh, C.S. Lewis' wife, Joy, they were not married for that long, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book called Grief Observed. It was quite late in his mm-hmm. life. These are just two very admirable men who wrote excellent uh, literature. I, we haven't mentioned uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. Mm. That mm. is uh, a very good read. And also, C.S. Lewis wrote several adult novels yeah. that are quite deep. Now, they're not the bestsellers that Narnia was, but they're, they're, there's a lot to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Till We Have Faces is a great novel. That's a great read. Yes, that is. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. Till yeah. We Have Faces is a great read. I mean, other books, certainly The Screwtape Letters, the Great Divorce. Oh, I about the yeah, the, 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 the Great Divorce. Yeah, yeah. Scootape uh, Leopardus is a great exploration uh, of original sin, one mm-hmm. of the best around oh, yeah. since uh, pa- Paradise Lost and Milton. They, yeah. yeah, that's a good book. Of course, Miracles. Uh, there's a the great number of works from C.S. Lewis, and I just want to encourage all of you out there to just start reading C.S. Lewis. Um, I know many of you have read Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, but he does have other pieces as well, and I would encourage you to to look those up and and to do so in the spirit of prayer because. One thing that we probably haven't emphasized enough, John, is that when we go to what we read, we really have to do so on bended knee, that God would disclose the beauty and the richness of the wisdom that comes to us from these reads, that we might just not understand something, but at the same time, integrate it, 
right? We have to read these men and integrate it. Again, I noted the work earlier by Joseph LeConte, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. Um, this speaks to so That's a great much. Title. Yeah, yeah. It speaks to so much of what we have just begun to talk about. And I really, really do want to encourage all of you out there to pick up this book. So, anyhow, John, with that, we will uh, wrap up with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.